is serious banter. Shall we begin? Let me set up the stage for what we are going to talk about today. So everyone on, thank you so much for joining. Again, this is another episode of Serious Banter with the collective, myself, Justin, and we get uh, uh, our big chief. This week is a continuation of, of last week's topic about wealth. We want to continue the conversation this week because a lot of things have happened. Plus, uh, one good example is, is the issue with AFD, the African Development Bank. Yeah, they said the, the president, Akuma Adesinaw, is corrupt. They investigated him. But then the U.S. came and said, oh, they want a new investigation. So that kind of influence is a touch point for us to say, in the global perspective, from a global, from a global perspective, let's look at wealth. Who controls wealth? How does it relate to power? How does it drive everything we do? Some people may say they are wealthy, but they don't have power. So who, who, who really controls resources? So we want to dive in, and we're going to have a, a variety of people join today. My own decision, you mentioned the, the AFDB thing. You know that those guys, all those foreign countries, you add them together, they are just 41%. So yeah. they, don't, they don't have 51% control of, of the AFDB. But even a minority stakeholder, because of the agreements that you, you've, you signed, eh, can give you plenty of trouble. I know that from uh, Hedikut Econet, you know, in Nigeria, a 5% stakeholder was the one that caused all the hour on the, you know, uh, on the board and uh, with, the, with the stakeholders. So, <laughs> it depends on the agreements you sign. You, you know what I'm saying? So, and uh, I think well, people outside Africa understand those things and understand uh, that you can't run away from what what you've uh, agreed to, and and they make our life you know very very difficult. So the, the whole area. Uh, in fact, my cousin also said something that he he looked at banking for a while and said, look, you know what, you know, banking is actually about lawyers. You know, it's lawyers that write agreements, it's lawyers that do all of those things. So at the end of the day, you know, when people complain about this, complain about it, it's about what you wrote. You know, and if you, if you look at um, all well, well, on a on a on a broader view, big big chief, if you are looking at from a broader global perspective, for example, oh. if you look at from a global perspective, it's kind of kind of where I want to, I want you to start from. Okay, okay, I, that's compounding. That one is. Simply, that is all. That also goes back to the same banking and laws and everything. Okay, how how does uh, your money you put in the bank compound? It's because of the agreements you know the bank has with you. You, you understand what I'm saying? That after a while they pay you this, after a while they pay you that. Okay, uh, so it, for for the global part, the one they're talking about, you know, the, the guys uh, who, who really rerun the world. Those people, you don't take. When there's a bit of distance, we're we're just learning now, <laughs> you know. So they they, they had a head start over us. You know? So control of wealth, right, is is guided by certain certain factors in my in my in my opinion, right. One is countries and their comparative advantage, right. Countries just have a historical comparative advantage when it comes to being able to gather wealth and to monopolize wealth, right? So if you look at the UK and their, you know, and their ability to have traveled out 
out of the UK over time and colonize territories and everything, right? They're still benefiting from those economic systems right down to now. And that's why a country like the UK that has 3 million people can dominate so much of the financial, the movement of money globally, with London being a, a powerhouse, right? Then you look at America from an innovation perspective, slavery, okay, from slavery, first of all, to innovation and everything. And that they have that comparative advantage in terms of being able to rapidly generate wealth, right? Even if they're not managing it, like the, like like in the UK and stuff, but to rapidly generate wealth, you know, by innovation and trade and stuff like that, they have that comparative advantage. Obviously, we know China now and what, and what China is doing as well. So by virtue of that, from that country perspective, you can almost understand that, you can almost see that residents of those countries, right, or 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 citizens of those countries would automatically from an individualistic perspective control money right so they'll control wealth right no okay um, that's what, that's, sorry i'm imagining see when we're talking about this um we should also now understand that it's also their definition of what it is or definition of what it is what what wealth is that money. what it looks okay. like okay because yeah. like uh, there's a book called the mystery of capital by hernando de soto he was talking about those guys understanding the fact that you can convert value in land to wealth, and that's why they, they own land on, on time and they do did all of this. But we, I don't think we we understand how to convert that value. No, I'm, I'm coming down. I'm, 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 okay. I'm, on this program, mm. I'm coming down. So, mm. okay. so that comparative advantage is what those countries have, right? And their citizens and their citizens now control cash. Now. The beauty of technology and where technology came in is that technology helped to at least democratize that a little bit, especially within the United States, right? But still, anything that technology has done has been done has been done within the context of the U.S. comparative advantage. So, if you look at Elon Musk, for example, Elon Musk could not achieve what he could achieve, what he is achieving now within the context of South Africa, because South Africa yes. does not have that comparative advantage that. US has, right? Now, the problem with, with when you look at Nigeria and why Nigeria is the way it is, let me use Nigeria as an example because we know Nigeria, is that when we're talking about money and wealth and even the conversations we're having around payments earlier on today on Twitter, right? Yeah. We cannot, we, no matter how hard we try as individuals, right? We cannot generate wealth that supersedes the comparative advantage of the country we live in. No matter how innovative we are, right? So why am I in the Middle East, for example? I'm in the Middle East because I took my technology from Nigeria. I'm using it in the Middle East, right? Because at least I can I can get margin on my technology. I'm, I'm, I'm leveraging on the comparative advantage of the Middle East to be able to do that. It's not because the Middle East is more innovative than Nigeria. I can tell you for a fact. No, no, no. Okay, now Edmond, uh, we, uh, we yeah. can let's let's go go back a little. Okay. Uh, yeah, we can talk about uh, <laughs> what the advantage really? now. But how how did a China come out from nowhere uh, to to build up that advantage? How did it go? Yeah. How okay, did Malaysia? Great. Malaysia Malaysia is actually my my best yeah. example. Malaysia, you know the history of Malaysia and Samuel. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Where coming to uh, Benin? They came to Nightfall to, to collect our seats. Yep. They went yep. to Malaysia. They were able to build up 
and industry in Malaysia. Even rubber too as well. You know, they are, they are the largest producers of rubber. So for me, I looked at it and I said, okay, how did, how were these guys able to 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 do this? And and where did we fail? Okay, you, so let's let 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 again, let me, let's look at America, right? If you look at the government of America, right, and how they started out and everything, and their proximity to slave trade, which in that time was the business of the day, right? Yeah. You can see how over time, they, they kind of like followed and tracked through, right? In a country like Nigeria, right, our government is completely divorced from any type of properly structured economic system. So as a result of that, even if we have money today, even if you told people it, even if, so, so in Malaysia and China, what did they do? They looked at what they had. They went to country and they copied systems, right? They brought those copied systems and they modified it. Look at what Trump said recently. Trump said that there are certain courses is not going to allow Chinese students studying in America again, right? Because they come and they learn and they go back there and they become better. So don't, they don't realize that they can learn all this is online now. <laughs> online now, yeah. But, but, we, but we don't, we, we've, never, we've never really had that, right? We've never really had that. We've never really had technocrats in government that can say, when our ambassadors go to so-and-so countries, our ambassadors go and figure out how in Norway they are able to use wood to build a house. But in no, no, Edmond, Edmond, they did. Um, there are so many, my uncles who have been in America for almost 50 years, were given scholarships to go there to learn and come back, but they never did, they never came back. Why did they not come back? Because things changed. There are people who left before the war and didn't come back. Hmm? There were also people like my mother who left later and still came back and she regrets her, you know, till today. And she went back again. Now she's in America to live there. You know, um, <laughs> it's a function of it's a, no, this is a function of the government, right? It's not that you know, so because one person was wise enough to send people out there, does not mean collective. The government is insane, right? So um, if there's one thing I agree with. No, uh, no, the, the government is you. The government is us. I think we have a mentality. There's a problem that we have uh, collectively uh, that yes, uh, that has caused uh, what what we are in. I was saying something before what uh, uh, I started um, that even the people who are still in Asia know how to invest the money back in Asia. Uh? Interesting. Yeah. Well, I remember the Nigeria Bank were interviewing uh, people then. But there was this guy. We we saw his address. His address was in London. So we asked him, well, why you don't have a Nigerian address? He said, no. Nigerian boy. So yeah. we now said, okay, okay, how long can you be contacted at this address? No, no. He said, no. They've had that address since, since the 1940s. But that's his home. You know, I, I looked at him and I said, okay. So his family has been living, his family has had a house in London uh, from the 1940s, and that's his home, that's his primary residence. Doesn't, well, it's Nigerian, though, you know? Yeah. So, so, so mm, I, I was just interesting. Look at the crazy rich Asians, you know, you know, mm-hmm. each time I, I, I watch, I read all the books, I watch all those things. Uh, as much as we were trying to still imitate the West, huh? there were a lot of things, the, the values and cultures that you know they still head on to and uh, those were the things that brought them back you know slavery and religion did a number of us particularly religion yeah. you know where we now started feeling that we're inferior we, 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 we start taking taking uh, uh, names of other people assuming their identities 
uh, going to live in their countries. That's what makes us more superior than that. So we, it, it, it's been long since money has been... I, I have an uncle who, when I discovered the number of houses he had, he had in Woolwich, I was shocked. You know, and this is not today that he started accumulating those houses, you know. He started having those houses from the 70s. And I was saying, why? You know, this problem did not start now. Justin can continue. Oh, okay, that is Justin. Um, that's a very, some, that's a lot a very of things good have been said about a comparative advantage. So, so maybe if you wanted to take it from there as well, but the floor is yours. Okay, I, I actually like the fact that I'm coming on the tail of what um, Edmund and Victor have been talking about because we can't situate this conversation entirely in the present. This conversation in the sense of global world, exactly. right? Without yeah. traveling back in, without traveling back in history. I agree. Now, let, I agree. Let me exactly. Let me try and draw a straight line between today and yesterday. So I, I, I put a chart up in in the timeline that listen this. The, the, the straight answer to the question today of who controls global wealth is simple. It's the U.S. being challenged by China today. But the U.S. didn't get there by stroke of genius, right? I really don't subscribe to the, the U.S. exceptionalism that we've all been taught to believe when we were growing up. We've all seen it unmasked today. But the truth is, it was all there. It was in front of us right from time. How did the U.S. become the global leading power today. How did the US dollar become the global reserve currency? That wasn't always the case. And it is the fact today that the US dollar is the global reserve currency that gives the US a huge advantage over everybody else. Now, how did that happen? The US dollar is not the first reserve currency. At different times in history, it's been the British pound, right? And the Dutch mark at some point. In the, in the 1950s, it was the British pound right and the Dutch mark but what happened how did America get into the world wars directly because those were basically European wars America came in to help but it wasn't helping for free America was being paid for its participation in the world and for supplying arms and supplying all of that it insisted that it should be paid in gold remember in previous times unlike today where the US currency is not linked to the gold standard when the British pound and other currencies were reserve currencies, they were linked to gold. But during yes, those yes. course of the Second World War, the US eventually became Control the largest gold. single depository of gold. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So everybody mm -hmm. was now looking at them that, how are we going to trade now? You have all the gold. War has ended. We want to rebuild and all that. And the US now say, no problem now. Uh, you know this currency thing, eh? We'll be using my own now. Uh, beggars, <laughs> cannot beggars cannot be choosers now. So everybody says, okay, no problem, we'll be using dollar. So okay, so it's no longer British pound, it's now dollar. Uh, we'll link it to the gold. Yeah, not a problem, now. there's always a way around it. So instead of holding reserve in gold, you'll now be holding reserve in dollars. So, so Justin, Justin, I mean, I like the historical context that you gave, but there's one core fundamental thing that I want to bring it into today, right? So when we're talking about Nigeria, everywhere else in the world, and what China understood and what place understood, is that the people yes. in government, right, had a fundamental understanding of economics, right, that Correct. is lacking currently. So it is not by fluke that the American person in government at the time Right, said this is how we're going to engineer the system to benefit us. Yeah, what we have to in Nigeria is a situation where the people in government are completely divorced from politics, right? 
and divorce from economics and actually even divorce from governance. So they're just governing themselves. That the only thing they are fully versed in is being selfish, right? I don't disagree. So, Trust so, me, I'm a greater yeah. critic. So with that in mind, so for example, right? So 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 example is that over the past couple of weeks, right? I've had Zoom calls with the Central Bank of Egypt. I've had Zoom calls with the uh, Saudi Sama and that's the Saudi Arabia Monetary Authority. I've had Zoom calls with with the Bahrain, the Central Bank of Bahrain, right? I cannot even get a proper letter into the CBN, the Central Bank. <laughs> um, so that I, tells you, guys, that guys, real quick, just a few more minutes. I'm going to bring two ladies on. So please wrap up, sir. Okay, okay let me just let me just say. So what I'm saying basically is that let me just finish in two seconds. What I'm saying is that we have governments in place that are supposed to put regulations that can establish us. You know that can or rather fortify our economic position in this world so that we have a better comparative advantage and so that as nigerians we are competitive but we do not have that let me let me just give you a history of that cbn thing that you're talking about this is not even now you know how many governments have we had since the 90s we've had abacha we've had uh, uh absalam we've had obasanjo we've had uh, yeah we've had uh, gag we have now have buhari now, throughout all of this period, uh, Central Bank was there as an institution, had different governors. I remember when we were trying to get the uh, clearing to be done, you know, to, or, or to be automated. We took these guys to like six different continents to see what we had already done. We did a four-year line line. Uh, um, I remember those days, uh, SAP uh, got uh, a deal to actually automate everything. Uh, in that very day that they got it, other people were now upset and they cancelled the deal. In fact, they, 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 they had six seculars that day contradicting themselves. Okay? Now, these things have, you know, it took a while and a whole lot of things uh, to happen in the industry for, for the CBN to, to do what they, you know, uh, they are doing now, uh, for us to even move to where we are now. Okay? And uh, the Bankers Committee, you know, let's now realize, you know, what. The problem was the, the bankers committee at that time was a lot more powerful than even the governor himself you know wow. and those are the guys that were, that were that were dragging us back they were already you know oh so the first some banks would be faster than, than others so what have, you know ah you know a, a guarantee trust will trust now be doing this and when we are still uh, behind well we're, that is that cultural problem the same thing that caused our civil war, you know. Can I come in here? Because the reason why yeah, I'm please. taking the historical perspective to this is it's important for us to understand it. A lot of people don't understand where we're coming from. So the frustration yeah. because we are bearing, right? Listen, name one sub-Saharan African country that is older than 70 years old for me. Apart from oh, the thank age. you. Thank you very yeah, much. Apart from the thank you. That, that's true. That's true. That's so, Oga, we are just starting this thing on. Unfortunately or incidentally, the people that we are benchmarking with have had centuries of practice. Yes. When That's you true. put when I you know. put all that into into context, you realize that we've not started. But that was Ethiopia was never Ethiopia was never colonized, actually, right? So so the rest of us in Sub-Saharan Africa, we all got independence in the sixties. Okay, some people in the late fifties, right? Three years before us. Right? 
it's actually one generation that has created the problem we're talking about. Everything that has happened from independence to now has happened in one generation. Now, look at the potential that we showed at the beginning. If you think about the people at the founding fathers, they don't have this level of, they didn't have this level of vacuousness that we see in the people who hold political power today. But by some, by some accident of history, right, between the military interventions and when they allowed us to experiment, then on the can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. Definitely. Yeah. So, so between independence and today, Remember that, I, I like to call them, is the class of 66. It's one coterie of about 20 people that have ruled this country from independence today. Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay, okay. Fire on. Okay, okay so, so, I, yeah, so this was, no, are you, are you done? Sorry, I, I don't want to, like, interrupt. No, ladies first, come on, bring it <laughs> Okay, all right, so I kind of wanted to address, like, the cultural aspect of why Asian countries, and specifically East Asian countries, so when I say East Asia, I'm talking about China, Japan, Korea, um, and every other country that's in what is called the Chinese sphere of influence have generally fared better in this situation, like um, in basically in the acquisition of global wealth than African countries. And it, it really boils down to two big things, right? So the first thing has to do with China specifically, and you know you could probably extrapolate this to Japan as well, but China was fortunate to be sited in an agricultural plain. So what that means is that China kind of it's kind of like if you if you if you look at all the different countries in the world and as a race, right? Depending on where you start in the race, it kind of does determine like how fast you can go and like how much how much how much farther you can go. So China had a leg up in the sense of like where it was cited as a country because that meant that China really was able to get to, you know, agriculture and empire building very, very early on compared to a lot of other nations. Um, there are a lot of other nations that, you know, didn't really get to that point until more recently in human history, whereas China has had a succession of very, very old empires. And because of that, they're able to, you know, build these highly complex empires that traded with other nations for thousands and thousands of years. And they have a long and storied history of governance and administration. And, the, and you know, it's funny, but a lot of people don't know that a lot of the things that we take for granted in most of the governments that we see around the world today are concepts that came from the Chinese dynasties. So things like the civil service, for example, that's a Chinese invention. You know, the civil service exam is a Chinese invention. A lot of the, the government stratification, all, a lot of those structures that are, that are known as quote-unquote government, those came from successive Chinese empires. And of course, they were adapted, you know, to various other countries as the concept spread. So that's the first thing is that China, Japan, and Korea already have a long history of administration to draw mm -hmm. upon. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, they were really, really good about recording their history, documenting everything, documenting, you know, keeping records and, the, and not just keeping records of, you know, what the emperor, what the royal family did, but then they kept meticulous and detailed records of things like construction, like they had blueprints. So for example, you know, the Daming Palace that's in China that was built, they've got detailed records of you know, the construction materials, what province of China the construction materials came from, how much was paid for it. And this was in like 19th or no dates. Like 
like you would not expect this level of detail, but they have that level of detail, and they've been and they've been record keeping for a really really long time. So because of that, they were in a much better position when modernization came, or like when the West came and they had to open up to to adapt to you know to industrialization, and they basically took off running. So that's the first reason. The second reason is cultural. And when I say the second reason is cultural, what I mean by this is that even though technically these three countries, you know, have or had different religions, there's a lot of overlap in the religions and the beliefs and the philosophies that they that they subscribe to. And the two biggest influences like across China, Korea, and Japan are Confucianism and Buddhism. Right? And how that reflects in basically in the the way the people the people themselves behave. So we talk a lot about how Nigerians are corrupt or how, you know, it's not just about the Nigerian government being corrupt, it's about the fact that every single day, like like daily Nigerians in their daily lives and in their de- in their dealings are corrupt. But really when we talk about why Nigeria is, yes, we're a collectivist society, but we're not collectivists in the way that these East Asian countries are. Um, if you give an example, right, so Confucius has something that's called the five great relationships, right? And these five great relationships formed the foundation for how every single person in China, Japan, and Korea was supposed to behave and conduct themselves. And those five great relationships are father to son, that's the first one. Friend to friend is the second one. Elder brother to junior brother, which is the third one. Husband to wife is the fourth one. And the fifth one is emperor to subject. And you can kind of extrapolate these relationships like to fit different situations. So for example, elder brother to junior brother means that people who are older for example have more more prominence and like you know and more power in society than people who are younger father to son you know your parents that's parents to children husband to wife is relationship between equals you know both different genders and then you know friend to friend is of course relationship between equals of any gender but then the final one is emperor to subject and so because of that in these countries it's not just that they have collectivist beliefs but it's that People see their primary their their primary responsibilities are to the state, are to their family, are to their community, mm-hmm. and these are very mm-hmm. these are very important relationships and they're very important duties. So it's not enough that oh I'm trying to get ahead in life and you know fuck everybody else like I don't care what happens to other people. You have and you know you you have a, a very strong duty to make sure that your actions are not causing detriment to your family, your community, your society, and that they don't bring shame to your nation, you know, collectively. And, you know, so if you, for example, if you talk to a Japanese person, right, if you ask a Japanese person, what is your name? You think that this is a super, like, this is a super easy question, right? Like, you know, they would just say, oh, my name is this or my name is that. I mean, now, I would say modern day in the 2010s, yeah, if you ask a Japanese person, what's your name, they're probably just going to reply, oh, you know, my name is Tadonaga, right? But if you went around, like, the year 1880, and you asked a Japanese person, what is your name? They would reply you, Toyodake no name Tadonaga des. And the translation of what that means is, Toyota Company's clerk 
my name is Tadanaga. Or they would say Shimazuke no Musuko Tadanaga das. That is son of the Musuko or of the Shimazu family, my name is Tadanaga. And I'm not saying that if suddenly everyone in Nigeria starts introducing themselves that way, that it will change our value or to change our beliefs. But what I'm saying is that language is often a reflection of of your internal worldview, and it's often a reflection of the things that you value and things that you believe. And the reason why Japanese is structured this way is because even something as simple and as basic and as personal as introducing yourself, it is structured such that you remember that you emphasize your connection to the company or your connection to the family. So basically, you don't just say, it's not enough to say, I'm Tadanaga. You have to say, I am the son of the Shimazu family, Tadanaga. And the, what, what that is doing is that that puts your relationship and your duty and your, your bonds to your family or to your company. You know, so that's the thing. Because of that, and that's the reason why when the Japanese government, after being defeated in, was it World War II or World War One, whichever of the world wars, when the Japanese government decided to restructure and then they sent people, you know, to go and learn American engineering, learn German engineering, come back and rebuild Japan, those people didn't say, oh, thank God, I'm in America now, because let me turn off my phone, this will stop calling me. They came back, they came back to rebuild their nation because they felt, yeah, they felt, yeah, they, they felt a very strong duty and a very strong value to their to their own country and they thought that if they were to run away or abscond it would be deeply shameful and so they were able to sacrifice themselves for a goal that was bigger than just their personal benefit or their personal goal because it was a multi-generational yeah I, I think i'm pretty much done yeah first sana was talking about basically like the cultural aspect so i didn't really have i let a pro take over because i didn't really have much to add into that i wanted to talk a bit more about the structure of wealth and power and ownership. Please go ahead. Please go ahead. Right. So where do, where does one even begin? Basically, with ownership in terms of, I'd like to speak more about, I think, business and tech and owning things. Going back to our case study of the Africa Development Bank, I think with ownership, the majority influence and voting rights, you know, that's what that is. You know, you can only really say that you have an influence if you your power within the company is the one that is important that can make the change, you know. So even in that case study, I think I was reading that the 20 largest voting powers, nine of them are non-African, you know. So how do you expect our own interests to be put first in matters that concern us when the majority influence and the voting rights you know, belong to foreign entities, you know, like USA, UK, Japan, Canada, France, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, and Sweden. Yeah, they have, they have, they have have like 60%. Yeah, I mean, they have 60%, but but at the same time, of those 60%, how many of their their countries rely on the 40% shareholders? How many of them can be influenced with other things behind the scenes? Yeah. You know, so do you even really have power? Like, yes, in numbers, quote unquote. But if you're constantly going to be, you're not even self-reliant. If you're constantly relying on the forty percent, how much of that sixty percent is really sixty percent, right? Mm-hmm. In more reality, the ones that can stand on their own, maybe it's a smaller number. Maybe it's twenty percent that that are self-reliant enough to not be influenced by the external factors so we need to we need in nigeria or in africa as a whole to own more of our own things how many of our own companies really belong to us 
you know, what is our influence in all of these industries? I mean, you'll say that, oh, we do a lot of oil. Well, one day they're going to wake up as they did a few weeks ago and be like, oh, well, we don't really need the crude oil anymore. You know, oh, we don't really need your cocoa anymore. Oh, we don't really need your cotton anymore. And the funny thing is, when they don't, they have other industry to fall back on. And, and we don't. You know, where is, where is our plan B? Where is our future thinking? Where, is the, where are our value chains? Where is the, um, the global value chains? Are we a part of them? Do we have a logistics and a supply chain? So I'm seeing a comment saying we don't have the capacity to own at this point. Are we honest with ourselves? Because it's not even about not having the capacity to own at this point. Are you aware of that so that you're working towards that? No, you know, we're just sitting there like, oh, it's fine. Someday we'll figure out something so that they want from us. That. Does right. the ownership not lie on the buying power of our consumers? Uh, if you wanted to touch on that. Okay, you can take, take it over. Let me uh, I was, was going to say, and then you have to find, so ownership then comes with trade. So if you want something that someone else earns, then you trade with them, right? So mm -hmm. if you don't have the people around you who have the buying power, you know, then you trade with the people who do. So that's why we encourage, like in places like Nigeria, we say, okay, fine, look for things that can that can be exported, right? Mm -hmm. uh, things that the countries that have buying power actually demand and find ways to, to make them. So to that, them. Okay. I, I also want to think about wealth creation in terms of mm -hmm. culture and if there's a few other things. So wealth has a culture, and I'll use India versus China as a contrast, right? So China um, has 90% Han population, right? So it has political stability. And for me, so I listed out a few things. I'll just run through the list real quick. And then I'll say, first, you want to have wealth on a broad scale. Um, you need inflows from culture, political stability, Productivity, trust, time, power, economy, and innovation, right? If you look at Africa, none of these things are really overwhelmingly in place, right? Some of it is because of the way our countries are set up, but also some of them are because of the culture. So that's why I want to use India and China. India and China, for the most part, have a whole lot of people, they have probably, you know, in the same neck of the woods, they have disadvantages and advantages here and there, but they have very old civilizations. However, where India is, where China is almost homogeneous, which means it's politically more or less stable, culturally more organized, there's a much higher trust. India has maybe 32 different sub-nationalities, right? So India has the same problem as Nigeria. India has like a bunch of different countries. So if you go to India and you speak English, maybe 200 million out of a billion people understand. Another 200 or something million speak Hindi and they don't speak English. And so trust is hard to build in a society like that. Political stability is actually hard to achieve. And culturally, there's a whole lot of things fighting against wealth creation, which is one of the reasons why India would probably... Okay, can you hang on a second? Can you hang on a second? Uh, yeah. India said, if we had good governance, we would have a culture of reinvesting. I want you to touch on that, but I also want you to touch on that as well. Okay, so, so good governance. So let me, I'll finish this point. So, um, if you have a country that has political stability, and it's one of the reasons I worry about America, because governance, yeah, seriously, 
Governance or politics flows from culture. Politics is downstream from culture, right? America was dominant and successful and very stable because for a greater part of America's history, there was a predominant cultural group, right? The WASPs, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. With more diversity, you have a lot more political instability. And with political instability, it's really, really hard to build a stable economy. That's just a fact. That's one of the reasons why, again, in Nigeria, the way it's currently constituted, it's really, really difficult to create political stability. We've had it a little bit better in the First Republic. Um, if you go back to when someone like Awolo passed the free education policy, which helped a lot to establish the West um, in terms of education advantage and corporate, you know, the corporate world and everything like that. Um, if Nigeria had a central system in 61 to 59 to, or 58 to 62, the Western region probably wouldn't have passed that free education policy because it's not just, Western education is not valued equally across every part of Nigeria. So that policy probably would have been defeated at some point. But because the Western region had their own cultural values that they all agreed, oh, this is something that is important, this is something we can make sacrifices to achieve, they were able to create that advantage for themselves. So in a country like Nigeria, if we wanted to, and this is the note that I'm going to end on because you know, there's other people that want to also share their thoughts. But if you want to create wealth in the long term, solve for political stability. And the way to solve for political stability is probably to allow, you know, good fences to make better neighbors. That's what they say. Allow um, for separation within some level of separation within each region. Not because you want to split the country, but because you want the value systems that drive each region to be consistent so that their politics are stable. And I think that's also why our first republic was when, you know, we had that rivalry between the regions, but I think it was when we had some of the most coherent economic policies across the board. So that's what I'll add to that. It's still about culture, it's still about values, um, and it's about political stability. Okay, fantastic. So I, I'll bring on Justin, thank you so much for joining. Just hang on in the comments and, and, and just follow us. So can I jump in and say something quickly? Please, please go ahead. Okay, so this is a conversation that Sugar Belly and I have had privately already before about the creation of generational wealth. So I'd love if she could also drop a few of her gems um, <laughs> if, she, <laughs> if she remembers. Yeah, so, so kind of echoing what a said is that, you know, diversity is good in terms of, you know, it, strength, it strengthens your thoughts and everything, and you know it, it enriches us. But diversity has one big weakness, and that's that in certain aspects that a country needs to grow because there's differences in thoughts and differences in opinions. Um, we it's very very difficult to reach consensus, and then you know we lose time, we lose momentum, and so on. And you know I, I kind of do agree with Ike in the sense that. The solution is for each group to stabilize themselves. And what constitutes a group, you know, in, in America, it, it can be races of people. In Nigeria, it's each tribal group or even each, like, each region or even each tribe. But the thing, though, like, as, as it relates to generational wealth is this. I think that people focus so much, like, looking upwards. And what I mean by that is, 
everyone is looking at the top, oh, what do the people who have it all have? And not enough people are looking at the bottom. So like even when people talk about things like wealth inequality, you know, and why certain groups of people have so much generational wealth, the, the conversation keeps focusing around, oh, how do we, you know, take away wealth from the top or how do we limit the amount of wealth at the top? And not enough people are asking, how do we raise the bottom, right? right? So I'm not one of those people who believes that there should be a limit to the amount of wealth that people can earn, but I'm one of those people who believes that there needs to be a basic minimum of decent life that mm-hmm. no human being should be allowed to fall below. And so, you know, we can talk ourselves so we're blue in the face about how this could be achieved on a national level, but I, I sincerely believe that, you know, these things begin at home and they begin in the family. I, I see a lot of conversations where people talk about inequalities and they talk about, you know, things like schools or they talk about things like jobs, but they don't realize that the inequalities, like people have already been set on on unequal tracks right from when they were toddlers. And it kind of boils down into the kind of family that you're you're born into, what kind of agenda the family you're born into has for your life. Were you born into a family where, you know, they look at the children that they've had and they've kind of like mapped out a track, a golden path for the child? Or were you born into a family where they're like, ah, na don't born again, no. And, you know, it's just like <laughs> the child just pops up and like nobody even has any clue yeah yeah, exactly like it's just like oh we're pregnant whoops oh well but don't you find that with nigerians it's heavily cultural like you can say oh you know we have uh, within families we want to build families but i think in nigeria Mm -hmm. it's not even that people want to keep it within their families people want to keep the wealth to themselves like yeah like even within the family even within the family okay real quick so so i don't see what as a control thing New world can always be created. I know uh, Justin has been hanging up for a little bit. Justin, if you want, if I know you had something to say. One time, real quick, and, and maybe also touch on someone's AK saying that it doesn't. Sorry, um, just just before Justin jumps okay, in, there's, there's one. Sorry, there's one last thing I wanted to say is that family wealth planning is not for the rich alone. Family wealth planning is for everyone, whether you're rich or you're poor. And more importantly, I think that a lot of people underestimate how much wealthy families share resources within the family. I see a lot of duplication of costs in poor families. It's always in the poor family where they kick the child out at 18 and then the child has to go like rent their own apartment. And it's just a duplication of cost, you know? I think that people you know, need to to build generational wealth, there has to be a pooling of resources within the family, but then there also has to be good stewardship of the resources within the family. So there needs to be long-term multi-generational planning for how the family allocates its resources and not just allocates the resources that it has, the whole family as a group has to agree on the plan that they have to develop capacity for new resources. So for example, like I'm, I'm someone who, you know, I believe in, you know, everyone should have only one child because i'm one of those people who's like world is too populated but if you do have a lot of children in the family i think it's very necessary to plan how each child contributes to the family's overall well-being in terms of allocation of resources it doesn't make any sense to have five children who are doctors that's some bullshit like you need to have <laughs> you know if you have one doctor you have one engineer you have one person who's good at business and you have one person who's good at accounting or one whatever like it has to be a strategic plan that furthers the 
the the long term group goals of the family, like long term. And and another big part of this is also who you marry or who you allow to marry into your family, because it doesn't make any sense if you've planned if you've planned out your family and like and all of your plans are going well, and then you introduce someone to the family who's just going to scatter the whole plan, and then you guys are back to square one very interesting point of view but i think that we should also take the dynamics of poverty into account poverty is not quite cut and dry i mean at the risk of sounding like captain obvious there are a lot of things that some of us might take for granted that when you confront or when you're confronted face to face with poverty you know that type of poverty where people are not sure what's for dinner Right? If you introduce the conversation about multi-generational wealth planning into that context, it, it might sound a bit um, like, what are you talking about? Okay, because when you take opportunity for class mobility out of the equation, which arguably is what we have in our society, it becomes difficult for a whole swathe of the population to actually be commonsensical about their lives. So it's almost cliche that we talk about the fact that poor people have more children, right? It's not because they like sex more. It's not. But I think that there is actually an element of social engineering. In fact, they are doing what Sugar Belly is talking about from a different perspective. For a lot of the abjectly poor people, children are an insurance policy. All right. So the more yes, you yes, I agree with that. Let me, let me land the thought. So remember, my premise is when you remove the opportunity for social mobility from the society. In other words, where people lack access, mm-hmm. where people lack opportunity, where people lack options, where life becomes a life becomes like Russian roulette. You know, hit or miss. Life is a gamble. So you find that. In poor communities, there's a prevalent sentiment. People will have five or six children because you know what? We know that why we go better, right? So, so it's kind of like a lottery system. It's a lottery system. One shot will enter. You know? Well, this is in contrast to another scenario where there's a bit more excess, there's a bit more resources available, and people can then plan think about career paths for children that they've had. Mm. There are people that don't have that luxury. And it is a luxury in this part of the world. It is a luxury. But, but, I mean, but hey. let me just push back a little bit. And so, so I was saying that societies that tend to control a lot of wealth, it's, it can correlate to the cultural aspect in terms of, and then planning aspect that more people, there's a lot more planning in setting aspects, uh, in planning in family structure. In a lot of those places, I understand. Yeah, the more the people have, about. the less children they tend to have. I mean, why do you think Europe and America yeah, have so, so I kind of the want to chime in the world. So I kind of want to chime in on that. So while yes, poor people do think that you know they're they're basically having children and gamble because they're hoping that at least one of those children will grow up to be successful and then pull everyone out of Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've heard that a lot. Like, I, I mean, I've heard it in person. You know, you don't know what he'll be in future. You don't know what she'll be in future. They often say that. Um, I think, that blessing. Yeah, I, I, think, uh-huh. I, think the, the, I think the problem with this, with this argument that they make is that it's basically a gamble, right? You're basically 
having 10 children and then you're hoping that one of them becomes successful but you have no no assurances whereas it makes more sense to have one child and then to carefully manage that child to <coughs> moderate success. So the and, and that's the thing. People who gamble, well, they always factoring. gamble on. Yeah, no factoring. No, 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 no. Wait, wait. Let, let me laugh. Sugar okay. belly. So people who. So, yeah. Hang on. You don't finish it. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I get that. But, but but hang on. Let me just let me just let me just let me just sound this out, right? So. People who gamble with, like, with in general, but in this case with children, tend to gamble with extreme outcomes. And what I mean by that is that you have ten children, and for every additional child that you have, of course, the family is is getting more and more desperately poor because they're limited resources. But then they're hoping that one child will become so wealthy that it will cancel out the extreme poverty that they're deliberately putting themselves into by having additional children. But what is a far more realistic and a far commoner scenario is that if you have one child, you could manage that child not to be a millionaire, not to be wildly successful, but to be perhaps one or two factors more wealthy than you currently are. And, that, and that's a very realistic goal and it happens all the time. So it's, it's very rare for someone to go from being poor to being a millionaire or a billionaire, right? But it is extremely common for someone to go from being poor to middle class or even just working class. And that yeah. is a huge and a tangible improvement on the life of somebody who's desperately poor. To go from not knowing what you're going to eat every day to being able to afford three square meals but you live in a basic ass house and you don't even have a car and maybe you just take a taxi to work every day. That's a massive improvement on their lifestyle. But they don't think that way. What they think is that oh, let's endure n never knowing what we're going to eat every day for 20 years and maybe at the end of 20 years of starvation one of my 15 children is going to become dangote whereas what they could have done is had one child or had two children and and manage those children to the point where those two children maybe just have a basic ass job in gt bank and they're able to live in a small flat but they live a good life you know and they're happy and they're well fed and people don't think about it that way well okay i just wait to Edmund, please. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm inclined to agree with. There's a whole bunch of of the. Actually, Sugar Bear, what's your name? Like calling you Sugar. My name is my name is Latana. <laughs> my name is Latana, but it's funny because like there there are people who call me Sugar Belly in real life because it's my it's my real nickname. Like it's not it's not a username. It's my real <laughs> nickname from when I was a child. It's a childhood nickname. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm inclined to agree with you because. Um, that, that obviously makes the most logical sense and everything else. However, right, we also have to understand that from a, from a macroeconomic um, or from a pure social perspective also has certain nuances that, you know, we have to account for. One of them is the fact that some of these poor people can't simply afford contraceptives, right? So there's no family planning. So that's also one thing we need to realize. So it wasn't just like, okay, oh my God, even when they decide not to have 20 kids, until Gold Circle came into you know, uh, production and Gold Circle was heavily subsidized and everything else, many, many, many poorer people couldn't even afford contra contraceptives. It, it, it seems funny saying that for a family to actually work in Beauty Bank, you know, so sometimes 
you know, and I, and I say this and I don't understand the reasons, right? But we mm-hmm. actually don't comprehend how big a gap that is. So I'm going to say something right? that is so, extremely so you, unpopular. You, so they factor in things like, you know, whether they went to school or whether, you know, they had a good education or whether their family, you know, even had food to eat. But a lot of people do not factor in into the causes of being poor opportunities that come like transient opportunities opportunities that come and then they go after the window of time has passed and they also don't factor in opportunities that they did not take people tend to you know factor in opportunities that they took that either like turned out well or or that failed but they don't factor in opportunities that they just didn't touch right even though the opportunity was there and what people don't realize is that when you are a poor person, it is extremely important for you to be as tied down as little as possible. And the reason for that is so that you have the flexibility to take any opportunity that anyone offers you. If you're a poor person who's married, right, and there's a job that might pay you a good amount of money, if that person's a woman, they'll say, oh, I have to ask my husband. Oh, my husband won't agree. Oh, my this, oh, my that. And- You're talking about middle class people. No, no, no. I'm not talking about middle class people. I'm talking about dirt poor people. I'm talking about dirt poor, poor people. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say though is that, and I'm, when I say jobs, I don't mean that somebody's going to come and invite you to work in GT Bank. A job for a dirt poor person could, could be something as simple as some rich man or whatever is doing some construction and they need somebody to carry the cement. That's literally what I mean. Like, I don't mean anything complex or that you need okay. to go to school for that. I mean something as simple as a person who doesn't eat three square meals a day right there's a house down the road or there's a house maybe you know in another state and this person has told you i will pay you twenty thousand or whatever x amount of money to come and carry cement in my house but that person can't take the opportunity because i have to ask my husband and my children will do this my this with that my this with that and before you know it some other person who is less tied down takes that opportunity. No, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, yeah. Let me have this comment. He said, I think being wealthy and being poor is a function of how easily value is converted from one to another, to another in society. I just want to add that. Yeah, Um, but I mean, I think the point I'm trying to make, okay, for example, look at a poor person has children, right? Let's say someone has four children and then something happens. Maybe they have a job, but they have four children. But then some unexpected event happens to that person and then that person can no longer work for a short period of time. They need other people's help to help them feed their children. Most people will say, oh, I can help you with one child, you know, or if you have only one child, they're like, oh, can I, okay, you know what, it doesn't matter if I, the mother, if I don't eat, please just let my child eat. The average person will take in one child happily and feed them. But who are you going to ask to take four children at a go? For every every additional child you, you produce, you are drastically reducing the likelihood that other people are going to be willing to help you, even if those people have the resources to help you, because it's just overwhelming. And that's the reason why it is to your strategic benefit, if you are poor, to remain as unattached as humanly possible until your finances improve. Okay, so let me. Let, I I, say, I I completely agree with with Lotana, right? But I, my problem is that we have to distinguish between the classification of opportunities, full stop, right? <laughs> so, so like you have the rural poor that kind of like fits, you know, what Lotana is saying. Uh, sorry, the urban poor, right? That fits what Lotana is saying. The beauty of the urban poor is that. It's easy for them to accept. It's easy for them to assimilate information, right? And new learning. 
right? The urban poor, the, when you talk about like the trickle-down effect and stuff like that, it usually goes down to the urban poor more than it goes down to the rural poor. So that's why you can see the urban poor, they, they know what Moschino is, they know what Versace is, they buy the fakes or they wear one or two of the fakes and they can engage in certain things that they can imitate, right? By virtue of their proximity to middle class and, and, and rich people, right? The rural poor don't have that advantage. The rural poor are pretty much subsistence and agricultural. So I'm going to sidetrack back into, I think, a pertinent issue, especially for like young Africans today, which I would say is innovation in an ever-changing world is kind of like what I would say the subtopic is and how ownership and technology is so important because that's the foundation for the future. Technology is something that I watch because as far as I'm concerned, information and data is king, right? So if we're talking about enterprise and innovation, who owns that in Africa? You know, I keep on seeing these companies and they're backed by their African tech giants, quote unquote, and their headquarters are in like Switzerland or Germany, or it's like these people from Poland doing something. And I'm wondering if, you know, if we're trying to say that in the next 10 to 20 years, innovation and enterprise is going to be heavily like technology backed. What is our ownership in that? Are we, are we, what are we doing within the production, manufacturing, healthcare, retail, real estate? Like, what is Nigeria doing in order to grab onto a piece of that wealth generation and that wealth creation and that ownership in the tech space? Because that's the future. Are we going to continuously be leasing out um, or subletting our future to foreign people? Good, good, good point, good point. And, and let's talk that for a second. Everyone wants to add to it, add to it. Okay, uh, so let me just jump in on, on, on that though. Typically, the people who kind of like own the wealth or who are like the much more privileged to own some fraction of the wealth here in Nigeria, Africa, don't necessarily understand that space. And so they're much more okay with like moving that wealth outside the country. And so I think this is where Victor was always hammering on. And they don't understand the space. And so it's easier for them to take their money outside and grow the money in already proven assets. And so when you meet them, I'm sure like Edmund will understand, even Bola will understand to a certain level. When you meet them about investments, they start to ask you like, ridiculous questions like as if you are a treasury bill yeah. <laughs> and you're just like this person doesn't know it and if you take this money that is going to be that's where you're going to die they don't understand like okay sometimes these things take time um sometimes it might the market might not even be ready and it means that you need to spend so much in like cultivating the market and getting a point to a point where uh you are able to reach all the addressable markets in the entirety of things so that is what is happening with like all the wealth that you are talking about in Dali to say about tech uh, and things like that. It is what yeah. it is. Maybe if we start to grow new set of millionaires or billionaires in quote unquote, hopefully like Edmonds and the likes will get there. <laughs> they are able to understand all these Amen. things and they are able to like invest in 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 in, in the future. Then okay. when we look okay. at it, so let, okay. So I'm with you. I'm with you on this, right? But let me also kind of I'm 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 like I'm on the fence on this right because me mm -hmm. I'm always, I'm I'm very pro I'm pro Nigerian ownership right. Mm -hmm. However, I also have to recognize that our financial systems are not mature enough, right? Right. 
to be able to provide the type of returns and exits that investors are looking for, right? Secondly, foreign investors and foreign large organizations, the way you're looking at Mm -hmm. it, like time control more Mm -hmm. than they understand ROI. Right. Right? Nigerians have an ROI mentality. Yeah, they're ROI focused. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're just Mm -hmm. not rich enough to be control focused, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you need the ROI or or else you're, you're doomed. It's just what it is, right? So we're not rich enough to be control focused. So they, they, you know, they can do control. They can play, make a control play because they already have an ROI play. So when these guys are investing and when they are building out things, they have, they have seven companies that they know, seven out of ten, they know it's going to make them an ROI. The other three, they'll put money behind it because it gives them control. And somehow that control translates into their overall ROI from a valuation perspective. You know. And that is because they have very, very advanced financial systems that allows them to do that, right? In Nigeria, it's not the same thing. So a guy is not going to take his money, right? Money that he can give to his own kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not be telling him 10 year for Yeah, like... The thunder, <laughs> the thunder that will fire that person is doing yeah, press Right, and the guy is looking, I'll make... I'll make... Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something with VCs, right? Well, before a VC puts money into your company, anywhere in the world, they know who is buying. They know who they are calling to buy. So they've, yeah, it's it's like, like, that, that, I can tell you they have, to write down, they have to yeah. write down to a science, right? The moment they put money in your company like this, they're saying, okay, if I put money into um Bollard company, from what I'm looking at, I'm gonna sell this to my guy in so so and so, whatever. And I, I from what from the kind of deals he has done in the past, I know that in five years' time he's gonna buy this company, he's gonna buy this company for two hundred million dollars. And he had called that guy and he said, hey, guess what? I'm grooming a company for you. And that guy said, oh, really? Is that what they do? Yes, I got you. I got you. They've agreed. And it's down to the science, like you said. It's absolutely down to the science. Absolutely down to the science. When I I told people that I didn't want to do anything, people thought I was a fool. Yeah, the people that are supposed to be acquiring, like the banks, the banks that can have a control mentality, they're the only people that are set up for a control mentality in Nigeria, the banks and the telcos. They're the ones that are supposed to somehow be funding companies here. Instead, what do they do? They see a, a they see a, a company, they look at it, ah, only two tech guys built that thing, or three tech guys do that thing. Hire three more techs and they try to commu- they try to build the same <laughs> tech guys do that thing. Hire three more techs and they try to commu- they try to build the same thing. They try to build the same thing, yeah, yeah. No, no, Edmond, that's also that's they are the ones that are supposed to be creating the financial system that allows Edmund. this to happen. That's also a ra- that's also a, that's also a rational behavior. Let, let me explain something. Uh, we will talk about VCs and how they how they plan forward, how they uh, they plan for exits and all of that. It's because it's a market. You know, yeah. all of this. We keep talking about all this. We all are talking about wealth that we talked about since ties back to markets. Market. You know what I'm saying? Okay, markets create wealth. Hmm? So it, 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 it is the debt of the market that, that you have, you know, in a place. Like even uh, the Chinese and all those guys that were talking about, the Chinese have had a civil service for, for 2,000 years. The reason why they had that was to regulate the market, okay? So, uh, and because they understood that prosperity comes from doing things properly. If you, if you allow irrationality to enter, enter the equation, okay, everything, everything falls apart. 
Now, yeah, what, what you were saying, uh, about, about, the, about the banks and the telcos and all of those guys, the way they behave, uh, the, the, reason, the reason a Google can buy 60% of the 98% of the exits that happen in, in the valley is because they know that, okay, look, those guys who are building that 60% are the very, very best. That's all I'm saying, okay? So, now, why would a bank buy you if they are not sure that you are the very best? Why would a telco buy you if they, they are not sure that you are the very best? Huh? Uh, it's mostly I can decide that, okay, look, I, I want to invest in, um, what they call those guys, team out. Because, you know, that, okay, those guys, they've had a track record of, okay, those guys. Let me, let me chip in, let me chip in there, right? And <laughs> again, we're back to the same point of the sophisticated marketplace, right? Yes. We do not have a sophisticated marketplace just yet. Because what would typically happen? There are the VCs, right, in America that scout school campuses. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's in that Yeah, in every school campus event, yeah, in every career event, they are there. And there are VCs ahead of them who know them to be the VCs that do that. You understand what I'm getting at? So prior mm -hmm. to white later, what would happen is that all the all those VCs would depend on those guys to, to be a funnel for deals. They will bring those deals out, they will put in the first thirty K dollars for the other guy to come in with four hundred K for four hundred K dollars. For the other guy to come in with two million dollars, then for the other guy to come in with thirty-five million dollars, and so on and so forth, until the exit is a sophisticated marketplace, right? Our system right now is not sophisticated enough for that to happen, and we have to understand why and what we can do. And now, let me interrupt. Uh, you know, you know why I brought that whole Malaysia example when we started talking earlier. Uh, in yeah. Malaysia could convert something that we had. That we did research on, that we improved, you know, we, we use our science to improve on a product. Malaysia took it and turned it into an economic um, asset. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we did research, too. we did all of that. It's Malaysia that's benefiting from. We also trained a whole lot of people, a generation of people. They all went outside, they're building stuff for, 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 for others, you know. Now, we, we do not know. You know, I, this is there's something I'm going to say now, which I've told somebody before, and the guy didn't quite get it. Our biggest asset is in the diaspora. Uh, when people at home can be offended, eh? uh, uh, please, you know, be offended. Our biggest asset. Please, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they attack me. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is the reality. You really have. This is why um, our, our remittances are outside. This is why we. Our, what we have, the most valuable thing that we have, is already outside. If we know that it's outside, eh? You understand what I'm saying? So we should start building those markets outside. Let's not kid ourselves to, to try to, you know, pretend that... The uh, is going to be one of our next topics. <laughs> FYI. Yeah, yeah, because, like, you know, this, this, the, our own is that we don't understand the realities. And we're not building based on realities. We're build, building based on emotion, you know? That's why we can have the kind of government that we have. That's why we can have, you know, the kind of... But let me also say, let me also say something, right? Um, fundamentally, yeah. fundamentally. And the reason why I'm happy, you know, to, to a large extent of the foreign ownership of some of the big tech companies here is that hopefully they exit those guys and those guys come in with a certain sense of liquidity or a certain amount of liquidity <laughs> that allows them 
Go ahead, Moro. Are they going to exit too? That's the problem. Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me let me let me land my point. Let me land my point. Are they going to exit too? That's the problem. Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me let me let me land my point. Let me land my point because that allows them. They now understand those structures, right? When I mean, they, they understand what it takes to make a sophisticated market, right? So those mm -hmm. guys become liquid, and I'm hoping that they don't just get Canada visa, American visa, and go and relocate to Silicon Valley. Oh, that's what that's what's happening already. But some people are. I know, it, but some people, some of them are trying, right? You know, so, and the reason for that is because they understand, like I said this thing a long, long time ago, right? In the first, that our Silicon uh, Africa group on, on Facebook, I said this maybe like five years ago. And I said that me, I prefer to have, right? I prefer to have 100 companies, 100 tech companies doing half a million dollars a year than having two companies or three companies doing yeah. right doing mil millions of dollars a year right i said that yeah, i right. to have a hundred of them doing 500k a year than to have that than to have two companies doing that right because when you have when you have uh, when you have a when you have uh, unfortunately, we lost it. So, so, guys, hold on, hold on, hold on, please. I'm okay. sorry. Hold on. So, what I wanted you guys to do for, for like, real, real quick now is take a step back. Let's take off all what has been said. And then I want to get, like, kind of like a guys, like, okay, this is what, this is where I'm at with all the things that we've discussed. Okay. So, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to actually put all this together because everything has just been fragmented. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> like, Everywhere is cut what I want to do is that I have opinions about this. I have very, very strong opinions about this as, as it relates to markets. Okay? Uh, uh, for me, the only way you can... Today now, um, on Bamboo, I, I think I got like about 80% return on my entire portfolio just today alone. So, and I'm looking at it and I'm with an asset just that. Why can't I do the same thing with the Nigerian pocket space? You know, why can't I do it that easily? Okay? Now, I had a conversation with two of my friends once. And, you know, there, there was something that I, I found out. That banks in Nigeria, even when they try to do margin trade, lose a whole lot of money because the entire platform is inefficient. I want to tell you, I want to just mention how, when we talk about markets, right, and how the markets have to be, have to, have to be right to, to allow for these things, right? Saudi Arabia has an e-promissory note. So what that means is that if I loan you money, you sign an e-promissory note. It registers with the Ministry of Justice. On the date you don't pay me, <laughs> no yeah? story. I don't want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> your cash. I don't want to ask you. Anyway, your cash is. They will just wire my share. Now, in addition to that, do we have enough quality of the comparative? We are a function of the country. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are a function of the country, right? Do we have enough quality teachers? Do we have enough quality lecturers? Do we have enough quality doctors? Do we have enough very very good I'm just saying now that we are a function. So at the end of the day, we have to. Based on what we have, right? We have to create. We have to create our own. Based on what we have now, the Chinese how did they start? They started making super products, right? It breaks, but guess what? They consume that shit until they get it right. 
That's that. Okay, but you, you, let me let me let me tell you what, man. You know that we already have that with Otiba. This is my problem with Nigeria. We we keep looking up to people rather than looking inwards or looking. That, that is true. That is true. Otiba. Otiba. Otiba was was a market. Was a tech computer market. village. Tech computer market. village. By for some people, I don't know what it's talking about. Exactly. Computer village. We did not develop that. We now started uh, building tech startups on paper. You know, and I, and I, I, you know, each time I mentioned it, oh no no no, no. It, that's what they yeah. are talking about. You know what COVID nineteen? You know what COVID nineteen did to us? COVID nineteen uh, even just showed us that all this tech now and I said the business models I started writing in my notepad had nothing to do with tech at the height of COVID. <laughs> had to do with tech. I was talking of how I'll buy palm oil, I will pour it into smaller. I remember you asked that. Um, Edward, do you remember that thing where you said, let's even assume that, okay, by what case scenario, I have to go look for a job. Where's your body? Where's your body? I can't do anything. I actually don't, I can't do anything. Even the example that I brag with, I'm not the best guy on Excel. Power point, I'm not the best guy on Excel. I said, what will I do with my life? I said, I trust him, my guy. So, yeah. Mentor is not occupation. Justin, I know you say you're playing this because I only try to know that like the year. So, so, the truth of the matter is that, see, tech has given us a bit, and tech has allowed us, like, some step back we need to do. You understand what I mean? Like, we've not finished the industrial age. We have not done the industrial age. We've not done industrial aid properly. We are now trying to be the tech gurus. Yes, but <laughs> fundamentally, let us just let's be let's be clear. You understand what I'm saying? We've not done agri properly. We've not farmed properly. We've not no tech com- <laughs> no tech company during COVID did not lay off. Think about that now. Apart from maybe Paystack and Co that have foreign money, but there's no tech company here that can say right in our bank account we have three three months worth of. Give the revenues that we can use, not revenues. <laughs> no, so no, so, so, right. I saw recently, I was laughing at it. You know, about all those guys that laid off, like what what they are, you know, they, all of them, none of them had made profit. That you know, COVID nineteen was an excuse. But there was there was something I was telling someone. Sorry, I was telling people that look, COVID nineteen has given people the excuse to do the unthinkable. Certain things you couldn't have done normally before that people will, uh, you know, I said just do it. You know, there's no. You know, but but again, right? I I believe we have to really understand when we when we talk about tech and all that type of stuff. We really need to we really need to understand where in that value chain we're trying to play, right? The fact that we can see the problem again is that the fact that some people can code automatically they assume that they must be a founder. No, no, our strengths we have. Really, really intelligent people who are not. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, the Indians, they've been able to like. I, I think I wrote this on Silicon Africa once about you know 
um, what I found out my very first few weeks in the valley, what I realized about the Asian diaspora, how they're able to lift their people, bring you know, bring uh, they even and, have their own section in the valley. That that's besides, how married is. They even have uh, their you can see their footprint, their imprint in the valley. I, I know, I know. Uh, well, the first place I went to, I, I got to San Francisco was Newbury. When I, you know, I started in Newbury, I found that it was an Asian community predominantly. And I was saying, whoa, I said, this is interesting. You know, uh, where, how many places do you have Nigerian communities predominantly? Okay, apart from maybe Houston. <laughs> we don't have passports. Predominantly. Okay, apart from maybe Houston. We don't have passports. We don't have passport privilege. No slander. I'm tolerated. No, 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 no. Justin, do you know something I discovered? I discovered that the Chinese people, oh, sorry, not the Chinese, just Asian people, they will apply for H1, like, have you heard of H1 for food before? Come on, making their food. So, they know. Let's uh, go back to the original thing. What I was saying earlier about the law and understanding processes and all of those things. This is where we have totally lost it. Countries oh or collective societies that have made progress understand how, you know, Justin, you were mentioning uh, the gold standard and all of that. The U.S. knew yeah. how to, how to use that to their advantage. It was a long game, you know. Now, for us, you know, there's something uh, Naval said about... Is he, who is he? Like, is he a prophet? I, I was talking about this whole ecosystem in Africa, blah, blah. You know what the guy told me? He said mm. that you cannot put a fish in the desert and it to survive. The guy nonsense me that day. I, I, Really? <laughs> I'm a fish in the desert. <laughs> I read and I realized I was a fish in the desert. Yeah, the you know, the all alone. That's what he was telling me. That you know, um I was okay, so okay, maybe we can do an oasis. An oasis is still in a desert. I stand with Nava. Tech guys in Nigeria should be looking more to export technology than to use it inside the country. Yeah, but you guys need to understand that we're, this is about wealth. Uh, my own, my own. Yeah, wealth is about how you move value around. Wealth is a multiplier of, of, of value. You understand? And where that value starts from is land, which we actually have in abundance, but we do not have ownership. Now, a landlord, said possession is not the same thing as ownership, okay? Yeah, I, I, can, not. I can possess land, but I don't own it, okay? Uh, if I'm producing cocoa and uh, it's turned to chocolate, the person now uh, uh, sells chocolate back to me. The guy has added a lot more value to the cocoa that, that was in my land. You know what I'm saying? So do I really, really own that land when the guy is getting a whole lot more value from that land than I'm, than I'm getting? That's exactly what is our problem in Africa. I, I went to school almost free in Africa. You know what I'm saying? Then I went abroad and I paid in fucking through my nose just to add a little bit more value. You understand? Mm. For, for creating value for them, they said, no, I came back. Let me come and create the value back home. You understand? I, I, mean, I, no. I did say I regret, sir. Yeah. Now, you know, that that multiplier is what, what we we miss totally. Now, we still have the opportunity in the diaspora, you know, to make countries greater in Africa. But we do not know there's a disconnect. Uh, why not? Exactly. Is it all our remittances, what are they used for? I, can, I was asking this question one day. And I was asking, ask somebody, okay, look, the, all the the goods inside the warehouse of the goods as his business, do you understand what I'm saying? What's the value of Adiboma? Nobody knows. 
So, you know, like, there's also a process thing. thing. So, all of those things, uh, we need to start relearning them and know where our real value lies. Like what, what Edmond said about exporting abroad, I have a friend, oh, I, I told him what we're doing for, for a bank in Nigeria. You know, the guy gave me some very, very good advice and everything. Next thing I saw, he started a company in Nigeria doing exactly the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Instead of us doing it together. And he's working with a tech company, you know, in the valley. He came and started exactly the same thing. I said, what kind of rubbish is this? So that's, that's something that, we, that's, that's my summary. What I want to say is that um, we have to find a way to, you know, we, we, we run really, like, I know we keep talking about ecosystems, right, as it relates to tech. But I think we need to just have an ecosystem mentality in general to be able to preserve the energy that we have, right? So, like, what I did during this COVID period, I wrote a list of all the things that, that, that I buy myself, right? And I made a point, and I said, listen, don't buy anything that is foreign-made. Buy everything Nigerian. We go manage and Whether we like the taste or not, we'll manage it. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know that? That's what happens in Ghana. A lot of Ghanaians do that. No, but the thing is that if you don't, see, if you add the first Indomie in the market or the Nigerian made Indomie and the North Sweet, actually, it will begin to really restrict the amount of money we spend that is less than dollars. Okay, you know what? Let me bring Sugar Belly to Sugar Belly. Let me bring her out to close. Okay, so 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 there's one so there's one last thing that I just wanted to add about ecosystems. So Korea in particular, but this also applies to Japan because Japanese people do this too. But Korea is a really good example. So Korea has built an ecosystem where all of their businesses, all the Korean businesses, indirectly promote one another, and they have the perfect vehicle to deliver it directly into the veins of their customers. And that vehicle is Hallyu. Hallyu is refers to the Korean wave, and the Korean wave is it's a collective name for the just deluge and the tsunami of korean films korean tv shows korean beauty korean makeup korean pop that came out of korea over the past 15 years and this wasn't an accident it was deliberately engineered by the korean government i'm serious like basically what had happened was that korea was dirt poor korea was so poor like nigeria has never been as poor as korea was when they when they decided to do this thing and they basically were racking their brains because they don't have oil they don't have minerals they don't have you know any kind of like you know your usual exports to rely on and they were like if we don't figure out a way to make money we're fucked and then they they started they realized that the only thing that they really had to rely on was manufacturing and their cultural wealth and so Yes, they followed all the other countries to try and develop manufacturing, but then they also brought in consultants to advise them on how they could turn their cultural wealth, like their music, their their traditions, their everything, and export it, turn it into a marketable product. And K-pop was born. And so basically, how it works is that you have these Korean pop stars who sing all these songs, and they, they do these catchy dances, and that's always like the gateway drug. That's how people from other countries first see Korea. And then because they're following these artists, they decide, oh, let me start watching Korean TV shows. And then when they watch the Korean TV shows, in the Korean TV shows, they show Korean people living glamorous lives, but they're, they're wearing Korean designers. Like, they'll show, like, the people in the TV show going to this Korean 
designer shop and buying Korean wow. clothes. They yeah. all use Samsung phones. I have never in my life ever seen an iPhone in a Korean film or TV show. It just does not happen. All yeah. of the phones are Samsung phones. You will never see an iPhone in a Korean production. Like because never. Meanwhile, our guys will be screaming the All of the cars, <laughs> like all, all, yeah, all. Last morning. Ever. All all of the cars, all of the luxury cars in Korean oh, shows are Kia cars, you know, or they're Hyundai cars, you know. They and, and then and then not just that, but then like they'll show parts of like Korean society. So like, for example, Jeju Island, which is like a really really popular internal Korean like holiday destination, it's now getting more and more tourism because in so many Korean TV shows, like you see the characters saying, "Oh my God!" Like you know, I can't wait to go to Jeju Island. You guys, let's go for a romantic death in Jeju Island. And like you have like 15 different Korean TV shows where everybody's going to Jeju Island or going to Busan. And before you know it, these foreign people who are watching Korean shows, they're like, why don't I book a flight to Korea? Why don't I visit Jeju Island? And they've already set up like businesses there to capture that money, like when those people come in. So Korea basically uses Hallyu as a vehicle to suck foreigners into Korea in order to make them spend their money on Korean goods and Korean products. So yeah, we kind of need to do something like that. And that's why I think I asked this question where I was like, does Victor think that, yeah, they basically, Indali is right. They basically utilize propaganda to and sell that, their products like, to other that's people. That's kind of like the same thing America did for the longest time, right? So mm-hmm. for the longest time, America did the same thing, right? Using their music, using movies and everything to sell America to us. When we finally got to America, that's when we now realized that America has a Sugar, buddy, thank you so much. Thanks yeah, sure, no problem. This is fun. That joined. And, and this is every week, so everyone is uh, welcome to join. It's collective, so we all bring in different views, different people from different walks of life, uh, different experiences. Thanks to every single one that joined. Next week is probably even going to be hotter than this week, because we even, in the course of this conversation, we've got a topic for next week. So please, 8 p.m. Tuesdays, West African time, join us here. We'll eventually figure out the best way to do this. To eventually be a podcast where everyone can go find it anytime. So please, thank you so much that for everyone that joined, everyone that chimed in, AK, Justin, uh, Edmund, Ndali, Sugar Belly, Lotana. This was incredible. Of course, Twitter is. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for everyone. We'll see you again. Serious Panther was. Uh, Brought to you by nobody if you're interested. We have a nice crowd of people to join. So if you have a product you want to you know, plug, you can speak to, speak to us. But this was incredible. Thank you so much for everyone that logged on. I'm sure we probably had at some point up to 500 people coming in and out. And this was this was great. We talked about wealth, uh, who controls wealth. The conversation was, you know, it went in different ways, culture and, and all that stuff. We'll kick it up next week. I think we have a good topic we'll be talking about next week. Thank you so much again for everyone that joined. I'll read all the comments and get some clips and post it. So we meet again next week. Take care. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, do remember to subscribe to our channels and follow our social media handles as well so that you can stay informed about subsequent episodes. And if you have any tips, suggestions, feedback or inquiry, do send us a message on any of our handles and we will be in touch. See you on the next episode. 